as we move into a time of corporate prayer and preparation for receiving the preached word. We want to meditate on the truth this morning that our God is good and he withholds no good thing from us, knowing that we can rest in him. The passage we are about to read in Philippians is a critical passage on how we are to deal with the anxiety and pressures of this world. Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Before we pray, I just want to share something I've been learning, I've been convinced of and perhaps convicted of, a model of prayer that's biblical, and I think there's five parts to, a, to prayer. The first part is adoration of our God. And that should lead us to confession, which in turn leads us to petition, to ask God to cleanse us from that sin. It asks God of what we need, which leads us to thanksgiving because he provides it. And then, and only then, supplication, a presenting of our request to God. I think too often we we start with the shopping list and we forget who we are addressing, the Lord God Almighty. Also, in corporate prayer, we are praying together. And I've been convinced that we need to use a, a plentiful amount of scripture in our prayer because we can all pray together. And I know we're Baptists, but it's not wrong to say amen in the middle of a prayer or utter words of agreement because we are praying together. Would you bow with me? Our Father in heaven, whom have we in heaven but you? There is a nothing on this earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. It is good for us to be near you. We have made you, the Lord God, our refuge, that we may tell of all your works. Oh, that we may come hungering and thirsting after righteousness today. For you have promised to fill the hungry with good things. 
Oh, that our souls may thirst for you and our flesh may long for you in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, that we may see your power and your glory. For your loving kindness is better than life itself. And may our souls be satisfied in you today and our, may our mouths praise you with joyful lips. As we come into your presence this morning, we are acutely aware of our sin and our transgressions before you. For if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We cling to your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our sins before you have been many, as we continually wage war against our flesh. Against you and you only have we sinned and have done much evil in your sight. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in your laws that you have set before us, even though they are just and holy and good. We have often leaned on our own understanding and we have trusted in our own heart and so often we have sought our own glory and not yours. We have often been angry and harsh. We have been guilty of clamor and bitterness. Things that we should have been put far away from us. We have coveted. We have not been content with what you have given us. We have been not free from the love of money and have sought great things for ourselves. There are times when we have minded the things of the flesh more than the things of the spirit and have made provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts of it, even though those lustful pleasures war against our very souls. Father, we have complained and we have grumbled. We have not trained our bodies in righteousness as we should have, and we have not bridled our tongues or our desires. Our lights have not shone in this wicked and twisted generation. Our iniquities are ever before us. They are too heavy for us. The burden is too much, and we are weary of our sinfulness. Lord, we come to you today, the weary, the heavy laden, to find rest for our souls. May we turn to you and bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. May we never again return to our folly. May sin no longer have dominion over us, for we are no longer under law but under grace. We stand in need today of cleansing. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. Purge us and we shall be clean. Wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. We know that you are good and ready to forgive, rich in mercy to all who call upon you. You are a God full of compassion. You are gracious, long-suffering, full of mercy and truth. According to the riches of your grace, which you have lavished upon us through the blood of Christ, we thank you and praise you that we know that we can have forgiveness and redemption. Now may the God of hope fill us with joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would deal with us according to your mercy and teach us your statutes. We are your servants. Grant us understanding that we may know your testimonies. Let the spirit of truth guide us in all truth 
and cause us to understand where we have erred. Let your word be hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against you and let your grace be sufficient for us at all times. And may we call upon you each day and seek to walk in your way. Be merciful to us today. And do more for us than we are able to ask or imagine and supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory. We give thanks to you today for your mercy endures forever. You have provided for our every need. You have provided for us work and food and shelter. Most of all, you have redeemed us from the curse of the law. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We pray today for your gospel to advance to lost sinners around the world. May the ends of the earth see your salvation. We pray that we would each seek to walk in your way and share your gospel where we are. We pray today for those in authority over us who rule at various levels of government. We pray that they would rule in just ways, in fear of God and not to please men. We pray that they would defend the poor and the helpless, to do justice for the afflicted and the needy, to deliver the poor and the needy, and that they not be a, a terror to good conduct, but to bad. We pray for your faithful ministers of word and sacrament today, that they may preach Christ Jesus the Lord, and that they may study to show themselves approved workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth today. We pray for those suffering in affliction among us today. Many are the troubles of the righteous, but you deliver them out of them all. Deliver them today, O Lord. Grant them a measure of your peace and comfort, and grant that their suffering would yield the fruit of righteousness as they wait upon you. We pray today specifically for the soon and safe arrival of baby Bateman. Lord, Grant them peace and comfort as they await the day that you have ordained. We ask for a special measure of grace upon them today. Now, O Lord, as we open your word, would you grant the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes that we may see and our ears that we may hear. Keep us from all error and guide us in all truth. May we hear and understand your truth and submit our hearts and our lives to it so that we may find rest for our souls today. May you be glorified in all things today. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. How does one find and maintain rest for the soul. In this world with many trials, much conflict and suffering, continuous stress and escalating demands on our time and energy, the default response in the human condition is anxiety, worry, fear, anguish. What the world may refer to as poor mental health, 
This is the condition of the discontented soul, one seeking peace, security, stability, and joy. This is what we all seek and long for if we really examine our own hearts. Today we're going to turn our attention to Psalm 116, a psalm of unstated authorship, but likely a psalm of David, and known as a psalm of thanksgiving. I have entitled this message, Rest in God, for He is Good. And if that's all you remember from today, that's okay with me. Rest in God, for He is Good. This is a simple yet profound message because we need to know so much about rest and the character of God to fully understand and apply this truth. So why have I deviated from my usual series in Philippians, you might ask? No, I'm not done there. There are three reasons why I've chosen to speak on Psalm 116 today. The first, of course, is that it is in the Bible. And we know that all scripture is profitable for study, so any scripture is a valid basis for a sermon. So we'll start there. The second is, a few years ago, my Aunt Alma here mentioned verse 15 and commented that she sure hoped that she would hear, hear a sermon on it one day. Well, here's the day. And the third reason that this psalm particularly verse 15, which says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Were my own father's dying words in September of 2021. Out of all the scripture that he knew and that he taught over the years, everything that he memorized, this verse was the one that gave him comfort and peace as he faced imminent death. So I thought it prudent to study this psalm and to share with you what I've learned in honor of my own father and to the glory of God. Would you listen to the words of the psalm? I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death 
of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all the people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The structure of this psalm is a bit complex as it contains elements of thanksgiving mixed with prayer, lament, confidence, and vows. The psalmist alternates three times between experience of deliverance and outbursts of thanksgiving. Central to the psalm is the confession of the perfection of God, the deliverer, in verse 5. The psalmist chooses to place the rest of his soul in God alone, for he is good. He is gracious, righteous, and merciful. God has delivered him from the afflictions and trials of life, and he responds in thankfulness and in faith. I'm going to take a different approach in the exegesis of this psalm today rather than working through verse by verse. Because of its unique structure, I'm going to take it apart into pieces to understand it more clearly and kind of put it in different categories. So I've asked four questions of this psalm. What, number one, what is brought about The, what is the experience of the psalmist? What has brought that about? And the answer is affliction. Dark trials which have threatened his very existence. Number two, what has God, God done for him in his affliction? The answer is that God has shown him his benefits, his mercy. Number three, what is the response of the psalmist to God showing him his benefits? The answer is that he calls on the name of the Lord in thanksgiving. And what is the end result? Number four, what is the end result of the psalmist calling on the name of the Lord? And the answer is that his soul can return to its rest in the Lord. So we have the ABCs and an R. Affliction, benefits, call on, and rest. I couldn't find a synonym that, of rest that started with D, so I'm sorry about that. A, B, C, R. So we're going to go one by one. Affliction. Let's examine the affliction that he's undergone. What has happened to him in the past? Verse 1 indicates that something has happened to him that caused him to cry out to God for mercy. He says, He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. And verse 3 then goes on to describe his situation as one of great anguish and distress, seemingly caused by some sort of a near-death experience. He was close to the point of death. The snares of death encompassed me 
the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Literally translated, the snares is translated from a word that means cord or ropes of death. Almost as if he felt a noose tightening around his neck. This is how close he was to death. This is how he felt. It was getting strangled. The pangs, the anguish or state of distress of Sheol, the terrors of the place of the dead. The grave laid hold of me, took over me. This is a state of great distort, distress and anguish of the soul. He felt trapped. He felt as if there was no escape. Later in the psalm, in verse 6, he says that he was brought low. When I was brought low, he saved me. Brought low is defined as a state of lacking what is essential. He was deprived of what was even essential to live. He was brought low. Verse 10 reiterates the fact that he was in great distress. I am greatly afflicted, he speaks. Verse 11 may indicate another source of affliction, possibly due to the deception or dishonesty of his fellow man. All mankind are liars, he says. It seems there was some deceit or he was tricked or fooled or had some wrong done by him. In this state of severe distress, he does one thing. He believes and he cries out to God for mercy. Verse 1 indicates that he pleaded to God for mercy. And verse 10 indicates that this is from belief or faith in God. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. And it is interesting and important to note and to study Paul's use of this phrase in, first, in 2 Corinthians 4.13. And I think this is critical for understanding this passage. And in that passage, in that verse, Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. What is this same spirit of faith of which he speaks? Since he, the spirit of faith that he has is the same spirit of faith that the psalmist had. We know from our passage already that the psalmist was at the point of despair and great affliction and anguish of soul, and he cried out to God in faith. To understand Paul's usage of the psalm, we need to review the broader context in which he uses it. So we need to look at 2 Corinthians 4, from 7 to 18. <clears throat> this is the 
the primary reference to Psalm 116 in the New Testament. So I think it's worth reviewing. This is what Paul writes. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In this passage, Paul is speaking of the great physical affliction with which which he and other believers have endured, even to the point of death, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in his body. He goes on to say that he is empowered to speak of this because he trusts in Christ and in the resurrection. He knows that if he dies, he will be raised with Christ. If he suffers to the point of death, the gospel will be advanced and God will be glorified. He ends with a triumphant proclamation and encouragement to not lose heart in the face of affliction because something greater is waiting for the believer who dies in the service of Christ. The focus on the unseen, eternal weight of glory drives him on. And that is what should encourage believers to not lose heart. God is good. God is faithful. God rewards his faithful servants. This sincere, deep, and abiding faith, this belief causes him to speak. His faith in Christ empowers him to speak out and to share the good news of Christ, even though he may face death and suffering because of it. God is good, and his soul rests in the good hands of his Savior. I believe that it is this passage in 2 Corinthians that ties Psalm 116 directly to Christ. As Paul speaks of the same faith that the psalmist had. Paul's faith 
was explicitly in Christ and Christ alone. Using the interpretive principle that the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament due to increasing revelation over time, we can therefore conclude that Psalm 116 looks forward to faith in Christ as Savior and Redeemer. This is in keeping, this interpretive principle is in keeping with the passage in Luke 24, 27 with Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. And it says, And beginning with Moses and all his prophets, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. These two words, I believed, in Psalm 116, I believed, signify a true and abiding faith in God for salvation. True faith, as we've discussed in Sunday school lately, true faith consists of three things, knowledge, assent or agreement, and trust. We can see that the author knows who God is, what his attributes are, he agrees, and he trusts in God for his salvation. So this is a brief summary of the affliction of the author and his response to it. Out of faith, he cries out to God. He has faith in God and he cries to God for mercy. Even as he speaks and verbalizes his affliction, he stays grounded in his faith. So how does God respond to this saint crying out for help? I have amalgamated God's response into one word, a word that the psalmist uses, benefits. Verse 12 states, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? God has provided a response which is beneficial, helpful, and indeed life-saving. I'd like to go through the psalm again and detail some of these benefits. Verse 1 says that he has heard my voice. Isn't this a significant benefit? That one could call upon the Lord Most High and know for certain that He has heard your voice? The God of all creation inclines His ear, verse 2, inclines His ear to a lowly man and listens to His cry for mercy. It is a thought that by itself alone should bring us to our knees in praise as we have done this morning in song that we would have direct access to the God of heaven and that he would care enough to listen to our cry, to our pleas for mercy in our time of need. Doesn't Hebrews state that not only can we approach God, but we are invited to and that we can do so in confidence? Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This last verse were contained the words that my dad prayed at breakfast every morning. I've heard this verse thousands of times. Thousands of times. Thank you that we may boldly come to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayed in the King James Version, of course. It sticks in my soul. Direct access to a God that inclines his ear to us and hears our voice is definitely a benefit. Verse 5 is a proclamation of the benefits of God. His attributes, which we can know to be true and that we can trust in at all times. The Lord is gracious, righteous, and merciful. Gracious, full of grace. Granting us favor when we least deserve it. Righteous, holy, and without sin, pure and undefiled. Merciful, full of mercy, not giving us the punishment that we deserve, sparing us from his wrath. This is who the psalmist knows God to be, gracious, righteous, and merciful. Because God is gracious, righteous, and merciful, the psalmist was preserved and saved in verse 6. God, in his mercy, reached down and preserved the life of this man in his distress and his affliction. He had called out to God. God had inclined his ear to him, had heard his voice, and then acted to preserve his life. Surely, this is a benefit. Verse 8 goes on to clarify the, the deliverance of this saint by the mercy of God. His soul has been delivered from death. His eyes have been delivered from tears. And his feet have been delivered from stumbling. Not only has he been removed from physical danger, he has been comforted and has been put on the right path again, had put on a safe path again. This, of course, has made me think of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there any mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away in eternity for all those who believe there will be no more death no more suffering no more tears no more stumbling or falling all these sources of anguish and affliction will be the former things that have passed away i'm going to skip verse 15 for a minute and mention the benefit listed in verse 16 <coughs> you have loosed my bonds Bonds, 
literally shackles. Anything that restricts freedom. God has made him a free man. Aren't you really free when you know that no one can take away what is most important? He is secure in Christ. He is free. God has loosed his bonds. This makes us think of the words of Christ in, in John 8, 31 to 36. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Consider also 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Or perhaps Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. The Bible has a lot to say about freedom in Christ. Our bonds have been loosed. That is truly a benefit of a merciful, gracious, and righteous God. So we need to go back to 16. To 15. Because I think therein lies a great truth, a great benefit. This verse, as I mentioned to start with, was really the verse that stimulated the study of this psalm for me. I needed to know what it meant. It just didn't seem to really fit. It's been said that a, a man's dying words reveal his true heart. And as my dad passed into the arms of his Savior, he whispered these words, and he died in peace. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What does this mean? To me, it would be more fitting if it read, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the life of his saints. Not death. But I didn't write. So it must mean death. How can death be precious to God? What does precious even mean? Precious means the high means high worth or high cost. And it's often used in scripture when speaking of costly stones or jewels. Also the love of God is described as precious in Psalm 36:7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You'll remember 1 Peter 1.9 describes the blood of Christ as precious. And we know that this came at the ultimate cost, his life. 1 Peter 2, 4, and 6 describe Jesus himself as chosen and precious, the living stone, the cornerstone. 
There's a similar phrase, and it's the only time it's used elsewhere in the Bible in Psalms 72, 12 to 14, which is a royal psalm. It's speaking of a good and righteous king and his relationship to his subjects. And it says this, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. To be precious then is to be highly valued and costly, of significant worth. So back to our verse in Psalm 116, when we see that the death of his faithful servants, his saints, is viewed by the Lord as precious, as high value, as costly, not something to be taken lightly or considered insignificant. I think there's two facets of this, two ways to consider this. Now the first, considering that the circumstances of the psalm, where the psalmist's life was preserved in the face of severe distress and affliction, that the Lord delays the death of his servant because it was not yet his time. Death only happens once. And it's a sacrifice of such high value that God determines when it will happen. We need to review Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none of them. God is sovereign over the days of our lives. And we can trust him with our lives. Our death will not be insignificant. Perhaps the other facet to consider is as a faithful servant of God dies, this is a sacred and precious moment to God. When a saint dies, having run the race and fought the good fight of faith, God is there. And that death is highly valued to him. He stands ready to bestow riches and honor and rewards upon the one who has served him faithfully. It's as if he's waiting at the finish line for the one who has run in such a way to win the prize. God, of course, has granted the will and the ability to run the race faithfully, but his servant has responded diligently in obedience and has worked out his salvation with fear and trembling, and now he is able and ready to achieve the salvation. And this is a sacred moment. God is presiding over that death. It is precious to him. He's ready to say, well done, good and faithful servant. God is there. This, I believe, is to be viewed as one of the benefits of salvation. The verse, verse 12 speaks of the psalmist can rest in the fact that his life and his death 
is in the hands of a gracious, righteous, merciful Savior, and that his death will be highly valued by God. It is a holy moment of reception into his kingdom and into his presence. It is precious. It is not insignificant. So we have looked at the various aspects of the psalm and which deal with the affliction and the trials of the psalmist, how he cries out to God for help, and how he becomes acutely aware of the benefits of God. He believes, he exercises faith in God that he knows to be gracious, righteous, and merciful. God then, as verse 7 indicates, deals bountifully with the soul of his saint. To bring this psalm together and to fully understand it, we need to review what the psalmist does and how he responds to this outpouring of grace and mercy and all the benefits of God. Verse 1 indicates that as a result of God hearing his cries for mercy, the psalmist loves the Lord. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I think of John, 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. God's, God has displayed his great love for his servant in displays of mercy and grace, and his servant responds by calling on him and loving him in return. The servant displays great gratitude for the merciful work of God in his life. He goes on to say that he will walk in the way, walk before the Lord, and in verse 9, he will lift up the cup of salvation. He will call on the name of the Lord. He will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And he will pay his vows to the name of the Lord in a very public manner. The response of the servant is one of thanksgiving and praise. And the psalm ends on this chord. Praise the Lord. As I've studied and meditated on this psalm, I've come to believe that we can trace this thanksgiving back to verse 7 where he says return O my soul to your rest for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you this thanksgiving and public praise to the Lord comes from a quiet and contented soul a soul that has returned to God for its rest and has true faith Trust in a sovereign God, one who is sovereign and merciful and righteous. He is a good God who deals bountifully with all his benefits. We have to think of Psalm 103, which begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The response to a recognition of all the benefits of God that have been poured out into your life should be one of quiet contentment which abounds in praise to God. We might think of Psalm 131 which speaks of a quiet and contented soul which does not need to know 
what God's plans are because we can't know. A soul that is satisfied to trust in a holy, good, and righteous God. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Paul, of course, speaks of this soul rest, this contentment that he has experienced in spite of living under persecution and adverse conditions. Philippians 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul learned contentment through the experience of God continually providing for his every need. He speaks in 2 Corinthians 12. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. His contentment, his soul rest, wasn't ultimately for his own benefit. It was for the sake of Christ. Christ is glorified when his servants demonstrate their trust in him by resting in his care and provision in all circumstances. Indeed, Paul in 1 Timothy 6 states this is of great gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and cannot take anything out of this world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. There is so much scripture written about the importance of having your soul rest in the Lord. If time would permit, we would explore the Sabbath rest in Christ. The eternal rest of the soul is described in Hebrews 4. And we would explore the words of Christ in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Consider the words of John Calvin. If the faithful regain their peace of mind only when God manifests himself as their deliverer, what room is there for the exercise of faith? And what power will the promises possess? For assuredly to wait calmly and silently for those indications of God's favor, which he conceals from us, is the undoubted evidence of faith. And strong faith quiets the conscience and composes the spirit, so that according to Paul, the peace of God which passes all understanding reigns supremely there. And hence, the godly remain unmoved, though the whole world were about to go to ruin. It is strong faith that quietens the soul. Knowledge is sent and trust. Strong faith when we do not see the light. We trust in God 
For we know from Psalm 84 that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I titled this message, Rest in God for He is Good. And through an analysis of Psalm 116, I hope that we have seen the author's afflictions, the bountiful benefits of God towards him, the vows to confess the Lord and call out to him for the rest of his life, and ultimately the return of the soul to rest in a good and gracious God in any circumstance. I hope that through a review of some New Testament passages, we have seen a direct link to the rest that we can have in Christ upon belief in faith and faith in Christ alone. The belief and hope that the psalmist had is the same belief and hope that Paul had and is the same hope and belief that we have or that we can have today. Is your soul weary and heavy laden today? Are you resting in Christ today? Are you content in your circumstances, free from worry and anxiety? Are you living in a state of praise and thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for you? There are some things that we can do to get back to that place of rest or to get to that place of rest. First, you need to be in Christ to experience his benefits and the rest for his soul. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You have to respond to the call of Christ to come in repentance and faith and fall before him and ask for this rest. Confess your sins before him and trust in his finished work on the cross on your behalf and enter the rest that he offers. Second, perhaps you are in Christ and have been, but you struggle obtaining this rest of soul. We need to recognize that the author of this psalm got to the point of rest by acknowledging his affliction, by believing that God can help him, by calling out to God, and, for, and by enumerating God's blessings and benefits in his life. He then vows to praise God publicly in the presence of all his people. This psalm could be viewed as a lament, a prayer in pain that leads to praise. We need to do more of this. Too often, we stay in our complaint. We dwell on our afflictions and on our trials. We need to cry out to God in faith acknowledging and calling upon his mercy, his holiness, and his grace. And repeat the words we see here, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. We need to recognize how God has dealt bountifully with us. And we need to move to praise out of a heart of gratitude. He has, first and foremost, provided a Savior for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom we can have rest. He has indeed delivered our soul from death. He has loosed our bonds. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We learned in Philippians that it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's all about God. It's not ultimately 
about us. Today, let us proclaim the benefits of Christ. Today, let us lift up the cup of salvation in Christ. Today, let us pay our vows to the Lord and call upon his name. And today, as we trust in his great love for us, and as we praise him for dealing bountifully with us, may our souls return to their rest in God, for he is good. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we praise you today for dealing bountifully with us. You are good, and your name is above every name. Grant that we may walk in your ways and that we would not hesitate to proclaim your benefits. May all anxiety and fear be far from us as we call upon your name and ask for the peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we believe but help our unbelief. We praise you in your mighty name today. In Jesus' name, amen.